two other campuses and our two other venues join us for our time of the word. I want to make a brief comment before I pray uh, about uh, last week. You know, last week I, I preached a message and uh, I'm intentional when I preach messages. In other words, I, I prepare and I study and I have notes, but I, I never know how things are going to go. And uh, last week I think was a, a rather special weekend. The message, uh, at least from the emails I've gotten, was uh, very meaningful to a lot of people. I think it, it touched a lot of people and I'm thankful to God for that. Uh, and, you know, it seemed that both the content of what we talked about in defining joy as well as maybe the, uh, the self-revealing <laughs> nature of the illustration at the end, I think really uh, was meaningful to some people. And, and so I, I had a lot of people email and text me this week and say, you know, that was the best message I've ever heard in my entire life. And, you know, that's the best message you've ever given and all of that. And, uh, and, I, and I wrote back somebody who sent me that, a text on that yesterday. I said, well, thank you. Of course, it doesn't bode well for this weekend. Because if last weekend was the best message that we've ever done, then it, it's not going up uh, this weekend. And, uh, and he understood that. I said, you know, it doesn't bode well for this weekend, but that's okay. I, I can take it. And uh, he, he, I love it. He texted me back. He said, just remember, even Michael Jordan didn't score 50 points every game. <laughs> so uh, with that said, let's pray. And uh, we're going to dive right into today. God, I, I do love these people. I love our church. I love your church. I, I love the people of God. I even love many, many, many people outside the fold. And I love you. And Lord, you know that I see my role as very, very simple at the end of the day. And that's simply to try to help uh, us as a church and, and help those around us understand and find you. And then, Lord, once we do that, uh, to then experience you and all that you have for us in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit uh, as we go along in life. So, God, that's my goal every day, every moment, you know, and even as we now uh, open your word here on Sunday morning. So I pray that as we do that now, that you might be pleased. I pray by the power of your spirit that you might speak to each and every one of us here today watching online and at our campuses and venues, and that uh, you, Lord, might be honored and glorified. And I pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. amen. So we're in a series of the uh, fruits of the Holy Spirit. Simply put, the results uh, of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And, and so far, we've seen love, we've seen joy, and today we come to peace. And here's the deal about peace. Let's just cut to the quick. Peace is probably one of the most overused, least experienced fruits of the Spirit that we're going to look at. I, I mean, we showed here earlier here at Shea uh, that little video of how the hippies talked about peace and Richard Nixon talked about peace and Jay-Z talks about peace and Biber talks about peace and, and, and the UN talks about peace. I mean, everybody in our culture today at some point talks about peace. We even have a universal symbol of peace like this. And yet the reality is, is that there's so very many people who don't experience peace. Even many Christians, we talk about peace all the time, and yet you look closely, and again, the fruits of the Spirit are things that have to be evident in our life. Even many Christians have trouble with this thing of peace. So it's a good subject before us today, because Galatians 5, verse 22, very clearly says, give me a click here to that one, nope, one more, but the fruit of the Spirit is peace. So it is something that God wants to do in our lives. It's a fruit that he wants us to bear to be evident to those around us. 
And so I want to talk about peace today. And for any of you who know how I usually think, uh, what I like to do first whenever we have a subject like this is to define our terms. Uh, so I've spent uh, the last two weeks immersed in a very rich and deep and biblical study uh, on this idea of peace. And I got to tell you, it's a fascinating and complex study when you study the Bible and what it says about peace. The word used for peace in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, watch this, appears just shy of a hundred times. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it occurs almost 300 times. I got to tell you, that's a lot of times. Almost 400 times the biblical word for peace appears in the Bible. Uh, that's almost six to seven times per book of all the 66 books in the Bible. And though we're going to see in just a minute that the Bible is actually going to break it down into various types and kinds of peace, let's first get all, all on the same page as to what we mean by peace. And let me give you a general overall biblical definition of peace that is based on all the occurrences of how it's used in the Bible and even an understanding of how the word was used in the Greco-Roman world that the biblical writers wrote within. And so here would be an accurate and clear way of defining peace. And this will get us all on the same page. And that is that peace is the cessation of hostility and the rise of friendship. And I would submit to you that both of these things need to be operative for there to be peace. It's the cessation of hostility and the rise of friendship. Now, now what do we mean by this? Uh, let me just show you a couple of passages uh, just very generally that the Bible throws out in which it uses the word peace. And you'll start to see why this definition uh, works. It says in 1 Kings 5.12, and talking about the reign of King Solomon, it says, The Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram, the king of Tyre, and Solomon, and the two of them made a covenant. A very simple verse here, but, but, but go deeper with this. You have, you have peace between two warring nations here, Israel and Tyre, and the very nature of this peace is the cessation of all hostilities and the rise of a friendship here that's called a covenant. And so that's what peace essentially is. Even when we use the word today, if we say there's peace between two warring nations in the Middle East, this is what we mean, that the hostilities have ceased and a friendship, hopefully, is on the rise. But it doesn't work this way just with nations. Now look at how the New Testament would go on to use this same word, peace, in a more personal and individual context. In Mark 5.34, when a woman had a 12-year bleeding condition and touches the garment of Jesus and is healed immediately, look at what it says in Mark 5, verse 34. It says, and he, Jesus, said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in, say it with me, peace and be healed of your affliction. And so this woman is healed of her terrible bleeding condition. There is now this cessation of hostility against her body. And there's even friendship between her soul and body. She is now at peace. And Jesus calls it such. And what you need to know, gang, is that this way of seeing peace is all over the Old and the New Testament. 
Whenever the word peace is used, whether in a national context or a personal one, whether it's between people or even things like a body and its diseases, the definition still stands. It's the cessation of all hostility and the rise of friendship. Peace is a descriptive term describing the state of being that exists either within a person or between persons. And it's very important that we all have this definition as mine uh, as we move forward. Because here's the deal, we're just getting started. All we've done is defined our terms here. Yet once we get what peace is in essence, the next step is to now go deeper and begin to parse out the different kinds and types of peace that the Bible talks about. In other words, where and how can we expect peace this side of heaven? And what does it look like? And in what context does God promise to give it? And yet in what context might our world want it but not necessarily find it? These are all very important questions of peace. And one of the most fascinating things that I found in my study of peace over the last few weeks is I looked at hundreds of different examples of peace in the Bible is that it really do, they really do fall into four kind of neat buckets of understanding or four kinds of peace that God talks about in the Bible. And here are the four kinds of peace that the Bible lays out. Give me just a click here. Well, one more. Just give me a click here. And that is redemption peace body of Christ peace, personal peace, and world peace. That if you wanted to distill all that the Bible says about peace, this is the most helpful way to see it, that the Bible is going to talk about four kinds of peace. And I'll just warn you right up front, three of these are promised and one of them is not. So let's break this down. Let's first talk about redemption peace. Uh, This is simply the salvation peace that you and I experience with God because of Jesus. And it's a very, very powerful and potent kind of peace that, watch this, was given to you the moment you came to believe in Jesus Christ. Whether you knew it or not, felt it or not, God declared it upon you. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we now stand. So because you have faith in Jesus Christ and now are justified before God, which means he's forgiven you for all of your sin, he no longer holds it against you, hell is no longer a reality, heaven is a guarantee, He loves you and will always be with you because of all of that based on your justification through faith in Jesus. God says you now have peace with him. The cessation of all hostilities and the rise of friendship between you and God. And we call it redemption peace. God no longer holds your sin against you. As Jeremiah predicted in Lamentations 3, his mercies are now new every morning, which means you wake up every day as a follower of Jesus and you have peace with God, at least from his vantage point. And it's a peace that you and I have in our salvation in Christ. And if you don't have that peace today, if somehow you're saying, oh gosh, I don't know if I got that, It's really not complicated how to get it. You need to come to a point in your life where you place your faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, accept him as Lord and Savior, and at that moment, 
The Bible says you now have peace with God. And it's a declaration upon you that will take you a lifetime to experience, but it's the start of it given to you by God at the time of salvation. Now, flowing from this, there's a second kind of peace that the Bible talks about. And this one's going to make some of you uh, get a little bit uh, itchy and hot under the collar. And it's body of Christ peace. And you're saying, what's that? Well, again, put simply, this is the type of peace that can and should exist among believers now that there is peace between them and God. In other words, when I was doing my biblical tracking of peace throughout all the Bible, it was fascinating. It talks a lot about the peace we have with God. And then literally within the next sentence, it'll say, and because you have peace with God, be now at peace with one another. Now, let me show you in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, how this works. It says, for he himself is our peace. He meaning Jesus. So that's that redemption piece we're talking about. He himself is our peace. Now watch this. Who has made us both one and has broken down his, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In the context that Ephesians was written in, when it talks about two groups now becoming one, it's talking about the Jewish people and the Gentile people. Because back then, one of the two biggest warring factions within that first New Testament church were the Jews and the Gentiles, because Jesus came to save us all. And so there are a lot of different groups in the church, the main two being Jews and Gentiles, and they were kind of warring with each other. And the whole point of what Paul is teaching here is that because of the peace we have in Jesus, now, now, now latch onto this, he has made us both one. He has broken down the wall of hostility. He has created one new man. Isn't that interesting how that wording is given to us? It doesn't just say, okay, now that you have peace with God, be at peace with one another. It's saying now that you have peace with God, he has created the platform for you to have peace with one another. He set the table. He has broken down that wall, so honor that and do it and be at peace with each other. Uh, Paul will go on in chapter 4 to actually get more frontal and say, hey, because of what Jesus has done for us, always seek the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so how do we do this? <laughs> It's really easy, and that is that uh, next time you get into a hostile situation with another believer within the body of Christ, here's what you do. You forgive them, and you let it go. Amen? Amen. I know some of you find that way too simple. And you say, well, no, it can't be that simple. Yeah, yeah, it really can. It's called taking up your cross, denying yourself, loving people more than yourself, loving the peace of God more than anything else, and saying it's just not worth having this type of disunity I'm going to let it go. A few years ago, at a one point when I was talking about grace, a couple came to me and had a very difficult situation before them. There were some other people in their spheres of influence who called themselves Christians, and they had entered into a business relationship with them. And, uh, and, and this business relationship, relationship ended up with them being owed, this couple here in our church, seventy-five dollars to $100,000. And this other couple basically said, we can't pay it back. We're not going to pay it back to you. And according to my couple friend here, they, they felt like they had thumbed their noses at them. 
Eventually, uh, they took him to court, and in a federal court, they got an injunction to say, no, you actually do owe this couple uh, the seventy-five dollars to $100,000, and you have to pay it. Uh, but they still couldn't pay it, and so they were going to declare bankruptcy uh, in order to have to get out from under this. At one point, the wife, as they were talking to uh, counsel with me, uh, said to her husband, I didn't even know this, she, she said, you know, I, I really think that God's leading us just to let this go, just to keep unity, to keep peace. <laughs> and typical businessman husband, he said, no, we're not doing that. And he went away on, on his business trip. At one point on his business trip, he called his wife and he said, you know, I've, I've been thinking about what you said and I've been praying about it and I, I think I concur. I think God is leading us to uh, let it go. She wrote a very long letter to this couple that owned them the money and explained their situation and very eloquently explained that this is because of their faith in Jesus Christ and the grace and peace that he has given them that she wants to release them of the obligation that they had toward them and just put this thing to rest. She got a very, very quick, short email back from the husband of this other couple. I'm going to read it to you. It said, I am speechless. It brought me to tears when I read what you sent. I don't know what to say other than thank you. You and your husband are great people. I feel bad that we potentially added stress to your guys' life. I want nothing more than the best for you guys, and I wish I could have done more to relieve that stress. I apologize for the short response, but like I said, I'm somewhat speechless. Thank you. God bless you and your wonderful family. And then his name. I know what some of you are thinking whenever I share illustrations like that. You're thinking, I, I could never do something like that. Or you might even be thinking, uh, Jamie, you don't understand my situation. And, and maybe I don't. <laughs> I I'm just a dumb preacher who's telling you to have unity with each other. I I'm just quoting the Bible to you when the Bible says that at all costs, we need to maintain the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace. And here's what I do know, all joking aside, I do know that there are times when it's going to be costly, when you and I are going to have to dig deep, when we're going to have to get radically selfless and other-centered and God-focused in order to do something like that. And I will tell you that it takes time. Uh, it took that couple two years of journeying in this way to get to that point. It's not an overnight decision. But at the end of the day, we are people who are known, Christians are historically, for being the peacemakers, for being the peacekeepers. It's a calling that God has given to us. So you got redemption peace, you got body of Christ peace. And then maybe this will help some of you with the body of Christ thing. Uh, the Bible talks about third kind of peace, and that is personal peace. Now, now, now what do we mean by that? A uh, personal peace, as the name suggests, is a kind of peace that comes to us, usually after salvation, on a very personal level, deep within our souls and even our spirits, and it usually comes when you need it the most and you honestly think you could maybe never get it. Look at how Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 describe this kind of peace. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There are two things you got to notice about this passage here. The first is that it is only reserved for those who in their anxiety cry out to God with prayer, with petition, with thanksgiving, uh, essentially with faith, and present it all before him. 
But the second thing I want you to know is that when believers do that, it says that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. In other words, don't miss this, that is a promise. And it's a promise that is to be trusted, not understood. It goes beyond understanding. See, some of you are tempted to say, well, no, it just sounds too easy. There's no way in the midst of my anxiety and my difficulty and all that I'm going through that God is going to give me that peace. Well, you won't know until you try, right? I mean, you have to get to the point where you're at the absolute end of your rope. You think that there is no way peace could come to you. And so in a desperate moment, you lay it all out before him. You cry out to him. And here's the deal, gang. He promises in a way that will blow you away that will surpass your intellectual capabilities to give you peace. About a year and a half ago, I was uh, called to Mayo Hospital in an emergency situation. I can't always go when I'm called to the hospital, uh, which is why we have 25 pastors in this church, but sometimes I can. And so on that particular afternoon in God's providence, uh, my secretary called me, and she said, I, I, I was on the road. She said, I, you need to go to Mayo. And I didn't know who the person was, but I, I was able to, so I went. And it was a very, very difficult situation. It was one of our winter members here who she, she and her husband would uh, summer back in the Midwest and then winter out here in Arizona. She was a very, very successful businesswoman uh, with, with a large hotel chain, very high-drive gal, uh, definitely a committed believer in Christ in her mid-60s. And she had had a cough and some discomfort and went into Mayo, and she got the worst news possible. They said, you have metastasized stage four lung cancer. And then they really dropped the bomb. They said, and you're not going to go home from this hospital because you have literally days, not even weeks or months. And they just put her immediately into palliative care with oxygen in the, in the hospital room. And obviously it was an extremely blindsiding type of situation. And, and, and her and her husband immediately called me. As I went to visit them, at one point she took off the oxygen mask and said to me, you know, I got to tell you a story, Jamie. She said, um, I've heard you preach for years. And, and every time you tell stories about how people would handle very difficult and stressful situations, I sat there in the pew and said, that will never be me. She said, I'm, I'm high drive, I, I, I'm kind of an anxious person, I, I panic when things happen, and you've told stories about how people get these awful scenarios on their life, and I thought, that'll never, ever be me. And she said, and here I lay in this hospital, and I've gotten the worst news imaginable. I don't want to leave my husband and my kids, and yet I'm laying here, and i got to tell you, I have absolutely perfect peace. And then she said, and I can't understand it. What passage do you think I thought of at that moment? I said to her, Beth, I said, I don't want to pop your bubble at all. I said, I don't even want to respond to you because this is exactly how it's supposed to work. I said, you weren't expecting it. It goes beyond understanding. You, you, this is one area you can't control. This is God and the fruit of his spirit in your life. And in your need, most needy time, when you never thought it could happen, you put your weight upon him and he's giving you peace. And she said, yes, that's exactly my experience. And gang, I'm telling you, I've been around long enough as a follower of Jesus and as pastor. I get the front row seat at that kind of stuff a lot. Because y'all call me when you're in trouble. And you call a lot of our pastors. And you don't think it could happen, but it does happen. God is good for it. He is a God who gives us peace. And again, let's go back to our list here now. 
that also then feeds into the body of Christ peace. So you're wondering, how can I be at peace with those around me? Well, you got redemption peace. You got personal peace. That feeds into the body of Christ's peace. This all fits together. And then let's talk about the fourth kind of peace that our world is really into, and that's world peace. And it's here we have to be really careful. Because if you've been tracking with me so far, these first three kinds of peace are uh, promises to those of us who will take God up on it, right? Give me a head now that you all understand that. You can have redemption peace, you can have body of Christ peace, you can have personal peace, you just got to take God up on his offer for that kind of peace and trust in him deeply and richly. Uh, but world peace is a very, very different kind of peace. The Bible does talk a lot about world peace, mainly at the end of time. It talks about the peace of the millennial kingdom. It talks about the peace of a new heaven and a new earth that someday is going to come. As Lewis once said, you know, life is like a play, and someday the director of that play is going to step out onto the stage and, and give a curtain call, <laughs> and the play is now over. And, and at, that, at that time, God then will set up a world, if you will, a new world in which there's going to be peace. But, but what about until then? Let me read for you a couple passages that have bothered Christians. These are the words of Jesus. Let this one sink in. Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Now, and I got to tell you, that's been a, a, a very divisive, if not misunderstood, passage over the years. There are some people that read that and think that Christians need to be a bunch of little Christian soldiers. You remember that hymn we used to sing? Onward, Christian soul, that one. And, uh, you know, they, they think that's what it means. But I don't think that's what it means at all. Now, now, let's dick deeper and richer in our understanding of Jesus' words here. I think what this means is that Jesus is telling us that we're at a stage of history where there's a battle between good and evil, right and wrong, and that his followers are going to be in the thick of that battle. That his followers are going to be followers who fight for the good, we fight for what is right, we fight for justice on all levels, and at times this is going to create some tension. You know, this is exactly what guys like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien believe when they wrote their, their fanciful novels like Narnia and The Lord of the Rings. A lot of what they were trying to communicate was this battle in our church age between good and evil, between right and wrong, and how as Christians, we obviously need to side with the right <laughs> and with the good on a regular basis, which is why Christians should be involved with justice issues and involved in this world and even in politics because, because we are trying to make this world a better place. The only thing we have to be careful of, and this is where I see a lot of Christians err, is that we sometimes put this potential peace and culture on par with redemption peace and body of Christ peace and personal peace, and we think that because God promised those, he's promised that. But that's not the case at all. In fact, look at how Paul the Apostle eventually landed on what we do with this idea of outside the church, outside of your soul peace. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So you and I do pursue world peace, but if possible, as it depends on us. And as you guys know, many times it doesn't. And so we do our part. We pursue justice. We pursue what is right. We strive for peace and love, knowing that sometimes on a cultural level, we're going to get it, and sometimes we won't. But the reality is, is that the other three are always guaranteed to us if we will take God up on his word. 
At this point in our understanding of peace, I got to tell you the obvious question I think of as your pastor, and, and now let's talk very, very personally here, is simply this. Here's my concern for each and every one of you, and at our venues and congregations and online, you as well. And that is, do you and I experience these first three kinds of peace on a regular basis, and do we do our part when it comes to the fourth? You see, peace is such an overused word. Many of us just allow it to do a flyby or drive-by when it comes to our life, and we sort of just dismiss it as, again, a, a Nixonian thing or a hippie thing or, or Jay-Z or whatever, and, and we never really give thought to what does peace mean for us as believers, and do we really have it in our lives? I mean, this is real stuff. This is not a pipe dream. This is for the spiritually robust follower of Jesus. And I'm telling you, peace is what separates the men from the boys, the women from the gals when it comes to the church. It's one of the top nine fruits of the Spirit. And so the question really does become, do you and I have peace and do we demonstrate this in our relationships and in our lives and in our jobs on a regular basis? Does it show that we have redemption peace and body of Christ peace and personal peace in our lives? And do we actually strive for world peace? I love how Dr. Paul Reiser, a medical doctor in, uh, in California who also is on the board of Focus on the Family, once put it in one of his articles. He says this, and this is a great quote. He says, at some point in life, we must ask ourselves, is contentment or peace created internally? Or is it the result of how things are going? Now, now you got to wrestle with that statement there. What does he mean by that? You see, I, I think what he's nailing here is that for many of us today, even many Christians, uh, we have the kind of experience with peace in which we have tied it deeply to our circumstances. In other words, we've tied our peace to how things are going. And, and if our circumstances are going well, then we have peace. But if our circumstances are not going well, then peace seems to go out the door. And then what we do is that we try to change our circumstances so that we can get peace again. You look closely. This is how so many Christians live their life. Much of my pastoral counseling is trying to undo this kind of stinking thinking because we think like this. The good life equals peace. Therefore, we have a good life bumper sticker on our car. The good life equals peace. And, and the bad life equals lack of peace. And so we strive to maintain the good life because that's where peace is found. And, and, and when we don't get the good life, we strive like crazy to change our circumstances so that we can have peace again. And I'm telling you, that is an awful way to live. Because again, what you've done here is you've tied your contentment to how things are going rather than something internal like maybe God's Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. And really the crux of the issue here, if you're the type of person who is all can relate to tying your peace to your circumstances, is what do you do when your circumstances go south and you can't change them? See, some of you have never gotten to that point in life. You've been so blessed that every time a bad circumstance has happened, you have read a self-help book or watched some previous episodes of Oprah and Dr. Phil, and you basically said, I can change my circumstances. And through the strength of your own will, because God's given you a wonderful strong will, you've been able to do so. But my problem is, is that there might come a point in life, because it happens to the best of us, where you experience a circumstance that you can't change. And then, no offense, you're sunk when it comes to peace because you've spent your whole life tying it to circumstances. 
I, again, I deal with this stuff all the time, gang. I mean, uh, right now in my life, I'm dealing with numerous friends who have lost a very dear loved one in tragic ways, and they're in massive grieving mode, and grief takes a long time to work itself through, and, and so they're not going to be able to change the circumstance of the person they lost. They can't change the fact that they're in grief. Let me ask you a question. Do I tell them that they can't have peace? I hope not. Or how about those of you out here today that are dealing with a rebellious kid? <laughs> And you've tried therapy, you've tried behavior modification, you've tried reasoning with the unreasonable kid, and nothing's changing. And it's gone on for years. And as a parent, your heart is broken. Can you have peace in the midst of that situation? Yes or no? I, 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 the Bible says that you can. Or how about those of you who have deep-seated financial problems that are so bad that it's going to take years to fix at best? As I, as a pastor or a Christian, can people, can I tell people like that, that they can have peace? Or how about this week? I was with a guy who, who, who went in for a medical test and it was not good news. And outside of a miracle, he now has a new physical reality. In fact, I was having coffee with him Friday before he was going in for a full body scan to find out where else the cancer is. Doesn't look good. What do I tell him? Well, get ready for a lot of non-peaceful times in your life. I hope that's not the message I have for him. I see my friend Noni here. How about even depression or anxiety? Have you ever wrestled with this one? In the midst of depression, can you actually have peace? It almost seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? I'm reading a book right now that was written a few years ago, New York Times bestseller list called Lincoln's Melancholy. It's about Abraham Lincoln's long-term, lifelong battle with depression. And the subtitle is How Depression Shaped the Character of one of our greatest presidents. And it doesn't mean that we make light of his depression, it's just that there are many people who struggle even with deep-seated emotional problems, and yet they talk at the same time about this overwhelming peace that at times God gives them. Are you starting to see? As long as we tie our peace to how things are going and not some internal reality like the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, you're gonna rob yourself of peace in times of great need. And yet the good news is, is that God has said, you don't need to tie your peace to things like that. Tie your peace to him and to trust in him. And he will give you peace no matter what your circumstances might be. It's just that it takes a lifetime to learn to do that. A closing thought here. We got a few minutes left. And, you know, Paul the Apostle is one of my favorite characters in all of the, the Bible. Because Paul the Apostle, some of you don't see him this way, but man, that guy was really real. If you thought what I shared last week was authentic, read the Bible. Uh, Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through, through the end of the book, man, he is so real. It's just, I mean, in chapter 1, he basically just says, I'm so messed up, I despair even life. That's pretty messed up. And, and that's Paul the Apostle. And he shares very honestly a lot of his struggles. One of the most honest struggles he ever shares is in Romans chapter 7. In fact, some people believe that in Romans chapter 7, he's not writing as a present tense Christian. He's writing about his pre-Christian days. The only problem is there's absolutely no evidence at all that he has switched tenses or anything like that. He's writing about a present tense struggle, and you can read it later. In Romans 7, he essentially says this. He says, you know, here's the problem with the Christian life. The things that I want to do, I end up not doing, and the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Can you ever relate to that? 
And he's just going, I, you know, I, I've been a Christian for a long time. I, I've, I've physically and visibly seen Jesus Christ. I've been caught up into various forms of heaven. I've been given revelation for God. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the things that I, I, I do want to do, I end up not doing. And he gets to the end of the chapter, and he asks a really, really important question that I think any of us who can relate to this have asked in our lives. He basically says this, and I quote, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Rather poetic to say his soul is in agony. And he begins chapter 1 by now taking us on the upward slope of this roller coaster. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that, by the way, that's the first step. It goes back to redemption piece. He just says, okay, I'm messed up. I, I, I do things I don't want to do. I'm struggling in my life. But you know what? At the end of the day, God has forgiven me. There's no condemnation. I'm not going to hell because I'm in Christ Jesus. I have peace in him. But he's not content to let it stop there. Let me read for you Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Because in verse 6, he then starts to get even more practical. And he says this. He says, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and, what do you think the next word is? Peace. Let me read that one more time. The mind set on the Holy Spirit is life and peace. So whatever that means, the key for you and I to have peace, even in the midst of our messed upness, even in the midst of our rebellious kids, even in the midst of our financial problems, even in the midst of all that we're going through, even in the midst of, of, of terrible tragedy and loss, the key to having peace there is a mind set on the spirits. And, and really what a mind set on the spirit is, gang, is a mind that leans upon him, that thinks about him, that trusts in him, that relies on him. It's a mind that is sold out to him each moment of each day. It's a mind that doesn't use self-reliance as a way to get peace, but Holy Spirit reliance. And you know, as I was driving to church last night, I, I thought, you know, that, that's as far as my notes go. I thought, you know, I, 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 I'm basically going to end this sermon by telling people what? Just trust in the Holy Spirit and you'll have peace. And there's going to be some of you that are going to sit there and go, that's it, that's it, that's what you're telling me? Like, I mean, I came all the way to church for you to tell me to trust God and I'll have peace. And what's the answer to that? Yes. <laughs> See, here's the problem with the way you and I think. We've read so many self-help books, we want three easy steps to peace. <laughs> you want me to tell you what to do so that you can go out and have peace today. And, and I'm here to tell you that I don't have that. And anybody that does is trying to sell you something. That's not how it works. Peace is an internal reality that is hard won and fought every day in your soul. I've been doing this for 30 years. And some days I win and some days I lose. It was actually funny. I, I, I was actually sitting there before the sermon. I, I, isn't this just how God works? I'm sitting before a sermon, and I said to Neil, hey, I need you to go back to the booth and give them some instructions. And, and I was kind of harsh in some of the instructions I gave. And I said, you know, tell them to do this because last night they did this and da-da-da-da. And, and then Neil went off, you know, to give them instructions. And all of a sudden I hear the choir say, it is well. <laughs> and I go, I can't even preach a sermon without realizing that my soul is a hypocrite. I, I, and do you all relate to this? So some days you're going to win, some moments you're win, some you're not. But what did Chuck Swindoll say years ago that encouraged my heart so much? He says, here's sanctification, three steps forward, two steps backward. 
Just make sure it's not two steps forward and three steps backward. Amen? Make it three steps forward. And then you're going to have a couple steps backward. But as Larry Crabb says, again, my mentor that I shared last week, Larry once said, here's the best definition of sanctification. It's a God-obsessed life that learns to fight the battle well. That's sanctification. And you and I are in the battle. We have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And every moment of every day, he screams to you, depend on me. And you can do that. And you will have peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've given to us in Christ. Thank you, God, that as Ephesians 1.3 says, that we have been blessed in the heavenly with every spiritual blessing imaginable, that that's really true. Open our eyes to that. And God, open our eyes, too, to these nine fruits of the Spirit. It's been a great journey so far. Love, joy, peace. Next week, patience. And then kindness, Lord. There's so many things for us in this. And God, what we're seeing is a pattern here in these fruits, and that is that these fruits begin with you, you who loves us, you who gives us joy, you who is a God of peace. And then it translates in our soul into how we relate to others around us. So God, as we give thought to peace in our lives as a result of that, God, may one thing be in our minds and hearts as we leave here today. May we remember that we have redemption peace in Jesus that we have body of Christ peace that flows out of the redemption peace we have. We can have personal peace as we cry out to you, and we can do our part, as far as it depends on us, by pursuing peace even with the world around us. God, help us to be men and women marked by peace. More than anything, may it come from your Holy Spirit who lives in us who believe as we depend upon you. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day. 